0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast.
1: Today's seminar is going to be about um, states of emergence, states of knowledge, and the comparative sociology of international relations in China and India. So Peter, a little bit like me, we were talking about this beforehand, has a kind of slightly odd mix of intellectual interests, uh, and is interested both in intellectual history as I am and in the kind of sociology of knowledge within the discipline of international relations and then also in, in Asia and particularly, obviously, you do China as well as India. I don't know how you have the energy to do that, but, but you do China as well as India. So um, I know you've all seen the, the flyer and so on, so what I might do is I'm, I'll pass over to Peter, who, uh, as you can see from the flyer, associate professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. Um, I should apologise too, you should have Renee Jeffrey sitting in this chair to introduce these seminars, but she is actually in Copenhagen right now, so she can't do that. So, Peter, over to you, the normal time, and then we'll have some questions and comments.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot, uh, Ian, for the kind introduction, and, and thanks for hosting. And actually, I'm not just passing through. I really look forward to coming here to Griffith uh, to do this presentation. As you mentioned, because I have really overlapping interest with not just you, but other faculty uh, at the GAI. So, um, and especially on this question of emerging powers, China, India especially, and how they view the world and international thought in emerging powers. Um, so I really look forward to presenting this paper um, here. Uh, I call it States of Emergence, States of Knowledge, um, on IR theorizing and rising powers. Um, My interest is in this relationship between rising and theorizing. I I thought about calling it theorizing powers, but then some of the reviewers didn't like uh, the theo because it sounds like religious or something like that. Um, But basically it's about theorizing powers mm, and this relationship. And this particular kind of power-knowledge relationship is something that has a quite long history in IR, actually often quite implicitly and and sort of under-theorized, is what I'm arguing. Uh, Many of you might know E.H. Carr's 20 Years Crisis, how he draws on Mannheim's sociology of knowledge in order to say that thinkers in established powers, or the haves, as he called them, also at the time declining powers, have a particular perspective on the international, one that aims at preserving, and preserving especially the status quo. Whereas rising powers, what he called the have-nots, have a different perspective on international relations, focused on revision, focused on change. So there's already some of that sort of sociology of knowledge of rising and declining powers in one of the sort of early classics. Uh, many of you, some of you might have heard of, of Stanley Hoffman's argument that IR is an American social science. Well, he also argued that it, it was born as America rose to global power. So there is something about this relationship with rising power and then the rise of international theory, international thought. Um, others have looked at declining powers and how they think about uh, international relations. Ian Hall, for example, has looked at, at uh, the UK. So there is something about rise and fall and international thought. Um, just to, 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 to give you a final example of one that's sort of implicit, but, but, but it's, it's there in one of the famous IR texts. Uh, many might have heard of Robert Cox's argument that theory is always for someone and for some purpose. If you read the whole quote, it actually says after for someone and for some purpose. It says, all theories have a perspective, perspectives derived from a position in time and space, specifically social and political time and space. The world is seen from a standpoint definable in terms of nation or social class, of dominance and subordination, of rising or declining power, of a sense of immobility or of present crisis, of past experience, and of hopes and expectations for the future. So that again captures some of this sense of decline, of declining power, immobility, standing still and the sense of hopes for the future expectations for the future that will be more powerful in the future so I'm interested in how this you could call it I call it the states of emergence in 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 the paper you could call it risingness, not just in a material sense but what does this sense that we're on the rise mean for international thought in a distinct context um, so today, of course, uh, I used to, uh, I, I've actually studied China, India, and Brazil, but Brazil <laughs> hardly qualifies as, as rising these past, uh, well, almost decade, um, five years especially. Uh, so I focused in this paper especially on China and India. We can discuss what rising means anyway. It's not just in terms of economic growth or military power. Um, but I, I focused on those two cases in this one. And what's interesting in those two cases is also that in this debate that's ongoing in international relations on whether the discipline has been too Western or especially US-oriented, is that a lot of people are looking to China and increasingly also India as a place where new theories, new perspectives might arise. And again, I'm arguing that this is because there is this implicit theorizing power thesis that Rising powers somehow need IR theory, or there's are somehow conducive conditions to IR theorizing. And why is that? That's very implicit often. Uh, just to give you some examples from the literature, people say saying that great powers often produce IR theory. Rising powers seem to get the IR they need, that's Kanti Bajpai. Our distinctive schools of IR theory, the exclusive preserve of great powers, that's Amitavacharya, is it independent IR theory part of the paraphernalia of great powerhood? That's Arlene Tickner and Oliver. So you have different people saying that, okay, we might expect something from China and India. Um, so that's what I'm sort of interested in, in exploring because I think that relationship is actually often assumed or asserted rather than actually studied. What is then the relationship between the state of emergence and the state of knowledge in a distinct rising power context? So basically, the theory I'm drawing on, uh, I'll I'll go quickly through that. It's it's a sort of uh, science studies, STS literature on the co-production of science and politics. And I think that provides a useful conceptualization of this relationship, that its the starting point is not an a priori distinction between the scientific and the political, between what some have called the internal and the external, because I don't think that's a very useful way of looking at the two and then seeing... Is it politics determining whether China gets an ia theory or not? Uh, rather, what, what uh, Sheila Yasinov, who sort of came up with this theory of co-production, is to say that it's not two ontologically distinct spheres. We need to think about it in co-productive terms. They co-produce each other, the scientific and the political. So the ways in which we know and represent the world are inseparable from the ways in which we choose to live in it. Uh, so, in any given context, scientific solutions to problems of social order they 're always embedded in normative understandings of what are the right questions to ask in this distinct context and what i 'm interested in here is the context of being rising risingness um, so scientists and scholars are social beings they live and work in specific socio political worlds. Um, it's not about determining whether Modi or Xi Jinping is, is you know, directing scholars to develop a theory, but it's also about being open to the idea that scholars, of course, reflect upon the context they're in. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily directly causal uh, relationships between the external, political, and, and the scientific. Um, right, so um, on the other hand, that's sort of one argument of, of co-production is that, that, of course, scientists or scholars are affected by the, the context there in. I just need to see if I can get some power here. Um, but the other side of it is that scientific knowledge also helps co-produce social order. Constitute, modify, legitimize the power of the state. So there's also a relationship that goes... Uh, it's not, but uh, I have 9%, so... <laughs> um, Your
1: did, uh, uh, yeah.
0: there it. Um, so it also goes uh, the other way that scientific um, products also can help legitimize uh, the state and, and co-produce political order in a distinct context um, so what I'm arguing, what I'm using this co-production uh, metaphor uh, for is to, to say we need to move beyond this idea that it, there's something internal scientific that then politics perhaps determines or that determines uh, and affects politics, but that it's the state of emergence is not an, a real world not only a real world condition external to science it 's inseparable to the state of knowledge, so these two are in a, in a, in a sort of co constitutive relationship um, but what i 'm arguing is also that they 're quite different the states of emergence in China and India, so the literature often tends to see rising powers or risingness as something somewhat similar and comparable uh, among the bricks or whatever it might be. People def- define it differently and it's not not always quite clear what risingness means. Um, in this sense you could talk about a collective sense of mobility, referring to the Cox quote I had before, of aspirations, future importance, the idea that we're probably going to become more important in the future, whereas the reverse, declinism, is the sense, the, the, the ex- expectation that we're probably going to become less important in the future. But it's not just that. It also operates within, if we were to use the inside outside metaphor, within science. It's a sensibility for scholars as well. Um, an ethos, even a motivation that we need to do something uh, to help our country, to help not just politicians, as I'll argue later. In in India, it's much more among the academics also about contributing to public debate on India's future role than it is about advising the government, for example. Um, So the two states of emergence uh, of of China and India, um, this is something I need to develop more and probably in a a future uh, project, differ quite a lot. Um, And this affects, and is affected by, Uh, scholarship as well. So for example, in the case of China, it's much more, China's rise is much more securitized than that of of India, especially in the West. And this means that a lot of Chinese scholars end up speaking much more to the China threat uh, discourse than in the case of India. Uh, There was much less in my interviews with Indian scholars of that sort of need to counter especially American but also European discourse on the China threat uh, or the India threat, as it would be in the case of India. Um, But they're also different in a lot of other ways, in the way they see their rise in history and so on. And of course it differs within these two countries quite radically. Um, So I don't intend to sort of homogenize any of them. The point is just when you do a comparative study, I'm just much more interested in the differences between the two, so you end up, end up somehow homogenizing a little bit in the end uh, because I'm more interested in how China and India differ uh, than here in studying the differences among, for example, Chinese scholars. I've done that in a different paper, and there's a lot of... Well, maybe a lot is, 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 is not the right word, but there is debate, and there is disagreement, and there are different positions also within uh, China. And within India, of course. Um, so basically, what I what I what I'm doing in the paper is it, it's based on interviews with IR scholars in China and India. Um, I've done interviews against after the paper was published, um, but this one is, is based on interviews from 2010 to 14. Um, I did some additional interviews uh, last year as well. Um, And based on that, I identified four registers, as I call them, of co-production. That's sort of four different ways of connecting the state of emergence and the state of knowledge uh, in rising powers. And then I tried to focus within the four on how China and India are similar or differ within those four registers. So the first one, I call it the constitutive register, which is basically this most macro idea that the state of emergence constitutes a new global epistemic object for rising powers. Uh, And that new object is conducive to more systemic, more global, more theoretical kinds of uh, thinking. So basically this argument uh, is that um, it draws associations between the expanding foreign policy scope of a rising power, rising global or growing global interests, and then... um, the epistemic orientation of its IR scholarship. So basically, uh, the idea that I encountered, especially among a lot of, of Chinese scholars, is that China's rise has made it more conducive to big thinking, grand thinking on the global order itself as a whole, and not just about the region or Chinese foreign policy only. Um, so some of the, the, the quotes from interviewees are... Um, for example, that they call this new object that we need to now analyze the whole world and not just Chinese foreign policy. We need to analyze international society as a whole, the globalized world. We need to take a world vision, a global vision. Uh, we need to look at the international system, the world order. We have we need to have a global perspective, a global knowledge with a global vision. All these kinds of ways of framing that now the time has come because of China's rise for us to have a, a global vision rather than just focus on analyzing Chinese foreign policy or regional or bilateral relations. Now is the time to think about the globe itself um, and not just that we also need to do it in a way that, that's distinctly Chinese so develop a Chinese perspective or outlook on this new object for us so as one called it perceive the international order from the perspective of the Chinese So this one, what I call the constitutive register, that the state of emergence constitutes a new global epistemic object, was definitely most outspoken in China compared to India. Um, So I found some arguments like this in India calls to construct an Indian approach to various global concerns. and, and, And to some extent, you could argue that it's increasing also, that India is simply just a little bit behind China. I think it's more complicated than that. There's definitely some of that, of course. But in general, I would, I would say my impression from the interviews is also that Indian interviewees compared to the Chinese, and the interviewees are think tank scholars and academics especially, and some retired uh, diplomats and so on, um, is that they were much more skeptical about India's emergence than China's, Chinese scholars were. Are we really emerging, or are we going down the drain? Look at all the problems we have. They were just much more skeptical about where is India going anyway skeptical uh, that you know emergence is just the government's project about you know shining India and and so on that it's not really emerging it's something from the outside not from the inside it's the way you look at us Europeans Americans when you're in this context you don't feel emerging in that sense Um, so there was quite a lot of difference in terms of uh, the two cases in this register yeah, then the second one, I call it the civic register. Basically, the idea is that there is a civic duty for scholarship in any context to solve societal problems, to provide expertise not just to the government, but to the public, to our country, um, to theorize, in this case, the specific condition of an emerging power. Um, so simply, I scholars as citizens of emerging powers they experience a demand from the government, from the media, from NGOs, um, civil society, for expertise that addresses these new problems. So it's this one. This register is very much problem-driven. We've experienced a lot of new problems in foreign policy that we need expertise uh, to solve. And um, and then scholars told me about this, you know, um, their experience that they are just contacted much more about problems relating to for example India's emergence even though they might not be working on that at all so I talked to a lot of scholars who then sort of simply had to change their focus a little bit to focus more on these traditional rising power concerns because that's how they were sort of approached by civil society media government and so on so the idea here is um, that there's a civic obligation to provide expertise Um, to take some quotes, to help our government deal with those new challenges. That was from a Chinese. To find solutions to these new serious problems. Um, and then not just that there are problems that need solutions, but also that there's a specific set of rising power problems. Uh, this was especially something I found in the case of China, that you know the argument that Western or American, especially, IR theories... They can't solve these problems. Your theories are made for conservation, for preserving the liberal status quo. They're not made for change. They're not made for our purposes. So the idea that there's a specific set of rising power problems that are about changing the international order then feed it into this idea that we need to then come up with our own theory that solves this, an indigenous theory made in China or India that can solve these problems uh, to take some quotes to find an Indian solution to Indian problems or as a Chinese said to do more research on Chinese problems to answer a specific question with Chinese characteristics those of you who worked on China would know that Chinese characteristics is this phrase that goes over and over again um, so what I'm arguing is that that's the case in both countries, but the, the, the civic register is still deployed in two different modes. So it's more in a policy mode in the Chinese case and more in a public or critical mode in the, in the Indian case. In part because of the way universities are institutionalized and so on. There's a long history that, that goes into this, of course. Uh, and in terms of freedom of speech and what you can actually say to the government in those two cases. Um, So when deployed in the policy mode, as I identify mostly in China, it takes the shape of an obligation to help and advise the government in solving the obstacles on its path to sort of great powerhood. Um, So some of the arguments were that, you know, all these American theories are about hegemonic stability. We need theories about change or unipolarity theory that's, again, serving the U.S. We need to find Chinese uh, theories that can... For example, especially um, help uh, solve the problem of a peaceful rise, or at least a rise um, without war with the US. Um, And then in India, I found it also some in China uh, who deployed in a more critical or public, uh, as I call it, mode, where the idea is that it's not to advise the government, but it's as public intellectuals, we have a civic duty to address problems that face emerging societies, Including civil societies, by critiquing the state also, so not necessarily advising it, um, as many of the interviewees I talked to in India I said it's the state doesn 't need us, the state despises us, and then those of you who followed uh, <clears throat> the development in Indian universities in, in well over the recent year or so would know that um, that probably the state does despise some of these uh, universities, and, and that 's felt. Uh, by many of the academics. But then again, um, the argument was that then we need to criticize the government in in media, via civil society, and so on. Again, the problem is then also not peaceful rise, uh, because peacefulness is not really that much of an issue uh, in the discourse surrounding India's rise. Um, And then there was also a lot of critique among academics of is this RISE thing a a nationalist, statist project? Uh, We don't have to... If we are to develop Indian theories and perspective, it shouldn't jump on the bandwagon of a rising India campaign. We we simply don't want to be associated with the state to that extent. That concern was not there in in the Chinese interviews I did. Um, Then there it's seen as more natural that if the state... Can, could find this useful that 's fine that 's not to say that that Chinese scholars are somehow sort of directed by by the central government because most of the people I interviewed felt that they were never really listened to by anyone officially. they just do their work and and the, the, as many of them said the, the, the government doesn't care about aya theory. You might think so from the outside, but actually they don 't care all that much um, and then the third register I, I identify as, is sort of more common sense one. It's, I call it the material, institutional, and institutional register. It's just a much more objectivist uh, way of, of, of thinking about the relationship, and more causal in a sense between the state of emergence and state of knowledge. It's simply that you know, emerging powers have more uh, simply more uh, economic uh, power, more uh, resources. They build institutions academically as well. Uh, and that allows the discipline, all disciplines, not just IR. Has, there's nothing IR specific about that, uh, to flourish. Um, so it's simply the state of emergence isn't there an objective condition of economic growth, opening up to the outside world. So that's the story in China as well that many told me that that, that you know, China's emergence has facilitated connections with other universities around the world, import of knowledge. And then increasingly also uh, that we realize that we need to contribute something to the international discipline of, uh, of IR. But that could be in any subfield or discipline. It's not specific to IR. Uh, so simply there's more funding, there's more institutional support, there's more international connectivity, and that is the argument among several of the Chinese scholars that I interviewed, has facilitated a turn towards theorizing because when you open up to the international field of IR, uh, basically the the story often told, especially by Jia Jing, who's one of the sort of leading Chinese scholars, is that we started out by isolating ourselves. Then we gradually opened up. We had this debate on IR with Chinese characteristics, but then some of the younger scholars started importing American IR, A lot of people went to the U.S., came back with IR theory, realized that this field of IR is very much centered around theories, started applying these increasingly during the 90s, and then during the 2000s and 2010s, there was a push to develop our own. Uh, We should also contribute something. Uh, He has has an interesting way of of putting it. He has a two-by-two table where he puts realism, liberalism, and constructivism, and then there's a fourth one open, for the Chinese school. So, so basically the idea is, you know, you have these mainstream theories and then you need to insert uh, the Chinese school into that. That's his view. Um, compared to that sort of story about institutional intellectual maturation in China, um, that allowed it to sort of emerge from stages of isolation, opening up, learning, applying, and then culminating in sort of theory construction. Indian scholars were much more skeptical and, and self-effacing in a sense that, you know, India's rise has not really translated into, uh, institutionally, materially, into the, the discipline of international relations. Uh, it's more been into science and technology, engineering and so on. But we, the social sciences, have been sort of overlooked. Um, so we have, as some of them told me, we have yet to mature to the level appropriate for a rising power. We're not up to the mark of a emerging power. So there was still this sense that it, material growth should translate into sort of more intellectual growth, but it's still not happening. Um, so there was a lot of sort of disappointment with the state of the discipline, and I think some of it not really... Uh, I think some of it was simply overcritical of the state of Indian IR because there's a lot of interesting scholars and work going on. Um, but there was simply not that sense of we're flourishing and we're rising intellectually, not at all. Um, and then the fourth one, I called it the psychological register. Basically, the idea is that the state of emergence also materializes as a sensibility where being located in an emerging power confers more status on us, more confidence, sort of you as an intellectual, but also more attention from the international uh, discipline. Uh, so uh, the expectation that, you know, future power, the future power of China and India will sort of result, has resulted in, in growing international attention to what emerging powers think. So people were a bit sort of on the fence about this. In, in China, more took it as, and that's fair enough, we also do have something to contribute, so if the world is interested let them hear the Chinese voice um, in India there was sort of this seen as a double edged sword that in the sense it's nice that people are listening but you're always put in that position of being an Indian perspective on something You're not giving just, you know, your work on NGOs or on the U.N., you're giving an Indian perspective on the U.N., because what people outside are interested in is an Indian perspective, basically sort of as a proxy for the government's perspective on whatever, peace building or something. So you're sort of put into this box where you're not on the same status as uh, Western scholars, uh, Euro-American scholars who would just talk about their research on the U.N., but you're giving the Indian perspective on that. At the same time, as other people said that you know, well, it's nice that the world is interested and I'm heard. That feeling that people are willing to lend your their ear to you that can boost your confidence. I'm heard now. India is taken very seriously, but you're taken seriously as an Indian academic. So there's that doubleness always. Um, and on and and at the same time. Growing attention also led among some Indian scholars to disappointment that we don't have something indigenous to come with, to sort of present to the world. It's not worthy for a rising power not to have a, a sort of distinct Indian uh, contribution. So, uh, so we need to, to show them that we can think, but we also need to develop uh, our own perspective. <clears throat> So those were the sort of overall four registers that I, I identified. So just to conclude, so, so I would argue that, yes, the state of emergence and states of knowledge in these two cases are inseparable, but they're certainly not determined, and they're not at all uniform processes. They look very differently. I didn't have enough time perhaps to go into why they look so differently because of institutional setup, uh, because of just the fact that their states of emergence are quite Different in terms of, as I mentioned, securitized or not, which means that uh, that affects also um, the shape the discourse takes. Also, for example, uh, historical relations with uh, how did they enter the international discipline of IR? Chinese IR very much went through American IR, which Indian did not to the same extent, and that also that also matters in terms of how uh, this discourse takes shape. So there's a lot of different reasons why they look looked different. Um, so they take different forms, but they also take different strength, I would say. Um, so it's definitely these co-productive relations are stronger in, in China than in India. China simply embeds and is embedded in the state of emergence to a larger extent. Chinese IR is, is embedded to a larger extent than Indian IR. Uh, the biggest differences are in the constitutive and the civic, partly also in the material institutional. I think in the psychological one less so. There were scholars in both countries who felt this international attention, felt that they had more confident confidence. Um, so, so that one is sort of more similar. I would I would argue. Um, so basically, yeah. Also to 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 conclude um, this theorizing power thesis as I started out with that's sort of present in the literature but not really theorized um, it's it's hard to demonstrate in strictly causal terms and I'm not arguing that it's causal either uh, I think also the very assumption that rising powers will and should become theorizing powers the assumption among scholars that Our should translate into a theory is itself something that motivates scholars. The belief in this idea that America rose and then developed IR theories and so on on, that should be translated into our context as well so it has sort of reflexive effects in a sense that because scholars subscribe to this idea it becomes self-fulfilling in a sense Um, yeah so I think I'll Finish on that and just to say in terms of some things that I need to because now this paper is already published. So I'd love to hear your comments, but I'm also looking to the future in a sense. And and what I'm interested in is is moving a bit away from the relationship between the states of emergence and, and knowledge production in those cases and but also looking at simply just comparing their states of emergence. One of the projects that I'm thinking of is is Looking at emergence emergence as a as a phenomenon as a temporal phenomenon it 's about time i don 't know if some of you who study India might have seen uh, there was a book out was it two years ago uh, called Our time has come This idea that you know emergence is about time it 's about the a use of history so how emergence is related to our history but it 's also very much about the future. Um, and it's, so it's a, it's a reconfiguration of, of time, that emergence is about time. That's something I'm trying to to sort of think about going forward, how these two cases also then are similar and differ in relation to that, because they use history quite differently in their emergence. Uh, in China, for example, the century of humiliation and, and that whole narrative re-emerging, of course, is the both of them have this sense of re-emerging, because we're old civilizations. We used to have a more prominent place, but there are different kinds of reemergence. There's not the same kind of I wouldn't call it necessarily vengeance, but, but you know, emergence from humiliation is, is not present to the same extent in the Indian context. Um, anyway, so those are just some thoughts on where I'm sort of thinking of, of moving this states of emergence project going forward. Thanks. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.